The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. You know, we started dating through all the muck and the problems with, you know, doing what we want to do, living in the worldly things, um, like doing drugs and going to parties. And so through all that, you know, we grew up a little bit more and we finally had our son, Darion Prophet. We raised together and we kind of slowed ourselves down and became parents. But, um, you know, the devil still had a hold on us. From that point on, you know, we started slipping down a real slippery slope. You know, we started doing real hard drugs. We started, you know, smoking and got real wild with it and um, end up losing things, you know, losing apartments, losing cars. And, you know, came to a point where I finally lost my job. And Amy got to a point to where she felt like she needed to get out, needed to get out. So when she did that, I had to go stay with my mother. Um, from there on, you know, I got worse to where I started stealing from my mom and, and she couldn't trust me in the house. She thought I, you know, I was going to slip out and do something to her because I was on, on these drugs. We were trying to keep connected with God. Um, we've been together for 12 years and I, we didn't understand who, what Jesus, understand Jesus. We just knew there was a God and we just didn't really grasp Christ in us. And um, we would try to pray at different times, um, and these would only be for like a month or little spurts and periods of times through the 12 years that we were together. In the end, when we thought it was all said and done, when we had broken up for the last time, I thought, and he went, he finally went to the Salvation Army, and um, we're just gracious and thankful, and I'm more than thankful for meeting Love City. Before I was walking with the Lord, I felt attacked and held down. I had felt pressure on my chest. Something was holding me down, something was holding me back because I felt my pride getting in my way. And after I gave my life over to Christ, the feelings after that was joy, peace, no worries. And uh, if I did have any problems, he gave me the word to read. And it was just glorious, just how he got his hand on things when you trust him changed my life. I got to tell you, church, I'm, I'm so fired up and excited about what Jesus is doing in people's lives, man. I feel like I could do a backflip off this stage right now. I'm, I'm not gonna. I, I, I'm really confident I'd be critically injured if I tried to do that, but uh, I, I just, I feel a, a, an incredible excitement in my heart because um, we had the opportunity to record a bunch of stories and testimonies of different people that Jesus has radically changed their life, but we didn't get them all. Uh, we're going to, we, over the last few weeks, and we're going to continue to see these, these videos, these stories, these testimonies of what God has done, but we, I don't think we could have gotten video of everything that Jesus is doing, and so it's just incredibly exciting. And, and you excited about what Jesus is doing? Jesus is doing stuff in your life? Am I the only one seeing it, or we got people here that understand the gospel's changing people? The gospel's changing everything, man. God's on the move. He's powerful, and he's doing stuff. It's encouraging to be a part of. The gospel changes hearts. 
The gospel changes minds. The gospel changes men. The gospel changes women. The gospel changes families. And that's the title of tonight's sermon, that the gospel changes families. For those of you that like a title, there it is. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Ephesians 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. Now, as you're turning there, I want to make something clear before we continue, because uh, we're going to talk a lot about the redemptive work of the gospel in families. But I want you to understand that we believe the Bible teaches that salvation is personal. Uh, and what that means is that each person must believe the good news about Jesus by faith to be saved. Uh, my children are not Christians simply because I am. Um, we, we don't believe that. We, we believe that uh, they will need to put faith in Christ to become Christians. Uh, this is the reason that we do not baptize infants. There are people from various backgrounds here, uh, various um, traditions, and some of you may wonder, why don't we bring the babies up and sprinkle them with water? Here's the thing for us. If baptism is an outward confession declaring that there's been an inward change, uh, there's no way that an infant can be declaring that they've put faith in Christ for salvation. An infant doesn't have the capacity to understand the gospel to that level uh, to make that declaration of faith. And so that's why we don't baptize infants. Um, some of you have asked about your kids being baptized, and we are 100% for that. All we have to do first is make sure that they do, in fact, understand and believe the gospel. Uh, we don't want to baptize them because it's really fun to see kids get baptized, though it is. I mean, we hoop and holler when adults go down, talk about some little kids coming in here and declaring that they love Jesus. You want to see somebody get excited, let me see some kids get baptized. I like it, and you should too. You should wake up. You're in church. I'm not sure what you think. This is not a funeral. Nobody died. Hallelujah. We're here to hear about how good Jesus is, okay? It's okay to amen. You can smile. You can. You got permission. It'd be awesome. Okay, we can be happy because Jesus is winning and we're on his team. Um, so we, we're happy to baptize children, but we have to be sure that they are, and it's not an age, we don't, there's not, because different kids develop it in different ways, mentally and spiritually. What we'd have to do is, is talk to your child first and find out, do they understand the gospel? Do they believe that Jesus made a way for them to be saved by his finished work on the cross? If, if they do, then absolutely, they can declare that uh, through baptism. And we want to be careful not to baptize infants and children too quickly or too early because we can give either the child or the parents <clears throat> uh, an untrue and, and, and um, potentially harmful sense of security. For example, this is, uh, this is more than just theological theory to me because I've encountered this oftentimes being out on the streets, doing evangelism, uh, talking to folks, whatever the case may be. I'll say something to them like, uh, so, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the scriptures? Um, what, what's your ideas about that? And, and kind of a quick response I've gotten from a surprising amount of people is, well, I was, I was baptized as an infant. And they think that that ends the conversation. And I'm, I'm like, well, cool, but that's not what I asked you, <laughs> you know. Um, that's got nothing to do with what you are willing to declare today that you believe about Jesus and the scriptures. And so uh, that's... That's why we don't baptize infants. We don't want people to think that that means, well, okay, my mom and dad took me up there. They sprinkled some water on me. I'm, I'm good to go. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, um, not because our parents' faith or because they got us dedicated or baptized or anything else. So, However, even though individual people are saved 
by grace, we do see that God very often works in and through families. Um, sometimes whole families become Christian at once. Sometimes uh, just one member of the family uh, turns from sin to trust in Jesus, and uh, then they begin to be able to be an example to their family. They begin to love their family, and, and they begin to pray for their family because their desire is for the rest of their family to meet Jesus. Um, and, and some of you are in that position right now. You're, you're believing God for family members to meet Jesus, and it can be a really difficult thing, and that can be discouraging at times because of it's intensely emotional when it's family that you love deeply uh, to think that maybe their eternity is not secure, to think that maybe they don't have relationship with Christ and they don't understand the beauty of the scriptures, that can, be, that can cause an ache in your heart um, for those that you love. And um, I just want to encourage you for a moment with, with a bit of a testimony uh, about that, um, if, because I think there are people in, there's some of you I know of in this church that are in that situation. Uh, my wife's parents are both Christians, and they're actively on mission. They're a part of what we're doing here at Love City Church. Um, really grateful for them. But the reality is that they were not always both Christians. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Natalie's mom, her name is Connie. I call her Mama. So for the rest of the story, that's how I'll refer to her. Uh, Mama got saved 16 years before uh, Rick did, which is Natalie's dad. I call him Pops. So here too. From now on, pops, right? So mom, mom uh, put faith in Christ 16 years before pops did. And so for 16 years, she knows the hope of Christ and knows that he doesn't. So for 16 years, she's praying. For 16 years, she's believing. Um, she's believing God that he would come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus. And I'm I'm sure throughout those 16 years that uh, there was times when that got really difficult. That could be super discouraging. That's a long time. Um, I'm sure there's times when she really wished that prayer would have been met quicker than it was. Uh, and there's probably times she felt like giving up. But by the grace of God, she never quit. And uh, she kept on praying for him. And the beautiful thing is that uh, he did surrender his life to Christ. And, and it, by the grace of God, he's probably one of, one of the wisest and uh, one, of the, one of the most godly men that I know. Uh, he's a leader. He's a leader in this church. He uh, leads one of our community groups, and uh, he, he has a unique ability to speak into the life of young men, uh, including my own, and, and he's able to do that all the time because of, of experience in the, in the life that he's gone through. And so um, I realize some of you may be tempted to be discouraged because you may have been praying for a long time, um, and, and that can be hard. It can be emotionally vexing. I just want to tell you, hang in there. Don't give up. Jesus isn't done, okay? There's always hope because of Christ. Amen? Uh, and when I spoke with him, uh, Pops, recently about uh, his testimony and kind of that portion of it, he, he, he really wanted me to mention 1 Peter 3, verse 1. He said that was important in what God did in his life and what 1 Peter 3 Verse 1 says, it talks about um, that an unbelieving husband can be won without a word by the behavior of his believing wife. And I just, I believe that principle translates to many family relationships. That our conduct, our, the way we walk in love or don't, 
um, the joy that we have, the peace that we have, the kindness with which we treat each other, that that can pave a way and it can open up a heart so that when the time is right, we, we have a platform with which to speak the truth of the gospel to them. And so our conduct is important. The way we engage with those family members, um, it, it really matters a lot. Let's, uh, read, let's read Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13 together. We're going to read to verse 22. Um, it's only really <clears throat> probably the last few verses that pertain clearly to the point we're making. But you know me. Uh, I get in there and stuff starts talking about Jesus and, and his blood and how awesome that is. The verses before, and we're going to read those. So that's just how it goes. Um, couldn't leave these ones alone. Okay? So we're starting in verse 13. We're going to go to verse 22. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. Ready, set, go. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might take the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so what first I want to key in here uh, is that it says that uh, we, in verse 19, it tells us that we are now members of God's household. The first way the gospel changes families is it makes them much larger. One of the incredible benefits of walking with Jesus is that you get to walk also with everyone else who's walking with him. That's one of the blessings and benefits of being a Christian. And so as a family like, like the prophets, like Craig and Amy and Darion, as they come to faith in Christ and they begin to follow him. They are supernaturally woven into the family of God. And Ephesians uses beautiful language here. It says that they're no longer aliens or strangers, but they're part of the household of God. And when we become a Christian, we become a part of God's family. That's what that's saying there. Now, uh, some of you read there and you saw that it said we are no longer aliens or strangers. And uh, I know we have some Trekkie fans and some Star Wars fans. Let me just clear that up. Because uh, a few of you got super excited and just found a new life verse because you thought, there it is, you know, I've got proof of extraterrestrial life, the scripture said alien. Um, <laughs> I love you, but uh, that's, that's not the alien we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, little gray guys with a head shaped like a guitar pick and bug eyes. That's, that's not the deal. Um, really, the word foreigner could be used there, um, so to avoid confusion. I know some of you guys were at Comic-Con and you were about to bust that verse out and wow everybody uh, with proof of alien existence from the scriptures, but um, that's not the verse. I'm not saying you won't find it anywhere, but that's not it, okay? Love you, mean it, moving on. Um, so there, here's the thing. Uh, what that scripture is telling us, the big idea that we have there is that 
we become, instead of strangers, foreigners, outcasts, because of the blood of Christ, we are drawn near and made to be a part of the household and the family of God. And this is an incredible blessing. This is encouraging. Um, but for most of us, there will be varied reactions based on your experience uh, and your perception of family to how you will react to being included in the family of God. Some of you, it'll be pretty straightforward. Uh, you'll think, I mean, that's amazing. That's exciting. I'm, I'm thankful to gain mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in Christ. That sounds like an exciting thing. I'm glad about that. Uh, some of you would be a little less excited. You'd say, listen, fellas, slow down a little bit. I can't barely handle the family that I got going on. I'm not sure I can add a, a whole bunch more. It's kind of enough to juggle the way it is. Uh, and, and for some people, it, it would be, you know, that this this truth about being a part of the family of God would be, it'd be of no encouragement at all uh, because of family dysfunction or because of the total kind of absence of a key person like a, a mom or a dad. Uh, family for you can be a subject that brings pain and difficulty when talked about as opposed to um, happiness and hopefulness. And so there's going to be a varied level of reaction or excitement uh, kind of based on your own experience and, and perspective about being a part of God's family. And I want to just speak to that. Here's the thing. If, if you're excited, if you're, if you're that first category, you're excited to be included in the family of God, you're probably not excited enough, and here's why. I would say that the implications of being grafted in and woven in and drawn into the family of God through the blood of Christ, the implications of that are so incredible. The blessing in that is so beautiful. It is is probably not possible for us really to grasp how wonderful that is, how incredible that truth is, how deep that is, that we were outcasts, that we were dead in our sins, but we were made alive in Christ and then allowed to be a part of God's very family. We get Jesus as a big brother, God as a father. Man, if you could sit there and stare on that one, you're asleep, didn't get enough coffee, or I don't know. Woo! No longer where I belong, cast out, but brought in, and not because I did the right thing, but because Jesus did. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So even if we're excited, we're probably not excited enough. If you're hesitant or you're downright opposed to being included in God's family or being included with all God's people in his family, I would, I would plead with you to try to see how this is fundamentally different than every other familial situation you've ever been a part of. I would plead with you to give me a few moments to try to convince you that being a part of the family of God is is not in any way like whatever negative associations you may have with family because of sin and because of the curse and because of human failings. This is different. It's different. And I'll give you, I'll give you some reasons why. I'm just asking you for a moment. If, if you hear the word family and you, you hear these scriptures about being grafted in and being invited into the family of God because of Jesus and the gospel, uh, and, and, and your initial reaction is something to the effect of, I, I, don't, I don't really care about that. I'm not excited about that. I, I, I can't stand the family I got. Why, why would I want to add a bunch more people that I have relational obligation to? If that's where your head's at, just, just give me a few moments. Let's, let's consult the scriptures together and, and see why this is different. The first thing, and, and I would say the most important thing, all the other points that I'm going to make about why this is different, hinge upon this one. 
The father in this family is perfect. It's a big deal. Every other difference between being a part of the family of God and just being a part of an earthly family hinges upon the fact that the father in this family is perfect. God is not the abusive dad. God is not the walk out on you dad. God is not the violently angry dad. Or he's not the never keep his word dad. He's a loving father. He's a never leave you or forsake you father. He's a violently angry if someone's messing with you, Father. And it's not that God won't lie. It's that he can't lie. It's not even a possible part of his perfect nature to be untruthful. It's not going to happen. He can't let you down. It's not even in his nature. He's perfect and too powerful. The dad in this family, the father in this family is perfect. For a lot of us, that's a major difference. As a matter of fact, for all of us. <laughs> Some of you had great dads, but he still wasn't perfect. Some of you had terrible dads. Some of you had no dads. I'm in the no dad club, right? So we have a varying range of experiences there, but God is a perfect father. He's not going to ditch you. He's going to stay with you. He's not going to abandon you. He's going he's to stick through whatever it is good times and hard times, and he loves you. He's perfect. So that's reason number one why this is different. Reason number two is the other members of this family have the Spirit. Family members can be difficult to deal with at times. Are we aware of this? Yes, right? Everyone can think of somebody, whether it's cousin, aunt, mom, dad, brother, sister, somebody, everybody has somebody in the family um, that, you know, makes you want to smash your face into something or hide or, you know, avoid holidays or whatever. Uh, they can be frustrating. And, and here's the reality. The family of God is no exception. We're still bringing a bunch of different people with opinions and mouths, which is often a bad combination, and we're asking them to join together on a singular mission to do something together. And so uh, conflict inevitably arises. However, when God's kids are functioning as we should, we should play by a whole different set of rules than every other family on the planet. It should be different. Though there will still be difficulty, though there will still be conflict because there's flawed humans involved, we should play by different rules. It should be different than the way it happens uh, in, in every other family. Instead of looking out for our own interest, uh, we are concerned with the needs of others. Instead of being in constant competition with one another, we're helping each other to reach the goal. We're encouraging each other. We're pushing each other towards success. We're not holding each other back. We're not jealous when someone else makes it, but we cheer for them because we genuinely love them. Instead of being easily offended and holding grudges, we are quick to forgive and we love one another fiercely. These are the rules that the family of God should play by. And Really, every Christian family should play by, right? So, but however, how many of you know that that's not always the way families go about it? Sometimes there is jealousy. Sometimes there is infighting. Sometimes there is selfishness. And sometimes it's rampant. Sometimes it's difficult to deal with. Um, and I'm not saying that 
being a part of the family of God, you're never going to experience any of that. But we have the help of the Holy Spirit to overcome, of it, to overcome it. We have forgiveness and grace and redemption, and we understand the gospel. And so we have a context with which to deal with that conflict that's different than just, well, you don't get to pick your family, so I guess i got to deal with it. We should have a genuine desire propelling us towards forgiveness and love and reconciliation. Because it's not about me. It's about Jesus and his glory. And so I know if, if I want God to be glorified in the way I, I, I deal with you, I need to make it more about you, your needs, wants, dreams, and desires than it is about me. Because when I'm selfless like Jesus, it lifts up the fact that men are new creatures in Christ. It, it runs against the grain of the way the rest of the world works. And so we get to hold up the fact that the gospel does indeed change human hearts. It takes me from a selfish all about me, survivalist, to somebody that is more like Jesus, willing to do what is maybe not best for me so that it would benefit somebody else. Okay, so that's the second thing. So first thing, the father in this family is perfect. That's why it's different than your, your, the bad taste in your mouth that you have about the word family. Uh, the other members of this family have the spirit. They have the word of God, and so we have a different context with which we deal with each other, okay? The third thing is that your acceptance, your acceptance in this family is not based on you being perfect or meeting somebody's idea of perfection, okay? Uh, this family, the family of God, it's full of sinners, it's full of failures, and it's full of screw-ups. That's the primary composition <laughs> of what we got going um, you're not accepted or rejected based on how good or how bad you are. You're embraced and loved because of how good Jesus is. That's the deal. That's what makes it different. It's not all about your performance and because the reality is we've all done bad, we haven't done good. If it was based on that, we should, we should all be rejected straight out of the chute. However, uh, Jesus made a way that we're not judged on our own merit somehow. That we're judged on his. And inclusion in this family is based on Jesus and his finished work, his perfection, his righteousness. And so it's different. I'm not, I'm not coming here putting on a show trying to impress you. I don't, we don't go to a community group putting on a, a mask and a, and a face so that we, we make everybody there think that I, I've got it together. That's not what it's about. I don't have to come there and, and put on a show. I don't have to fake it like I, like I do everywhere else to try to impress somebody about my station in life or my emotional health or wherever I'm at. I can come and I can be vulnerable with the family because I know really if they're being vulnerable, they're, they're probably going to have the same level of honesty. They're going to be struggling somewhat in a similar way and we're going to be able to pray for and encourage each other, speak the scripture to each other, take truth and try to pound on those lies until they're, they're pounded out the back of our head and replaced. We'll be able to love each other. Push each other toward love and good works. That's what Hebrews says. What we're supposed to be doing when we get together. Not, not backbiting and infighting and competing and comparing. We're supposed to be loving each other and challenging each other to, to do better. Equipping each other. Cheering for each other. And that, that should blow the world's mind. Those who do not understand, those who have not had their heart changed by the gospel, it will run counterintuitive to all that they know when God's people love each other in the same vibrant way that Christ did first. And thus, this opens up doors for us to preach the gospel. Why do you treat each other that way? 
Why does it seem you're more interested in the needs of someone else more than yourself? I don't see that very often. Why is it you seem selfless instead of selfish? That's, that's different than what I'm used to seeing. These are the opportunities, dear ones, to say, let me tell you why. It's not because I'm great or I came out of the womb as this altruistic, amazing person. It's because Jesus has done something in my heart that only he can do. It's because I've been forgiven of sin because of grace. And I've been loved by Jesus in a way that causes me then to love others. I can't help it. Amen? It's beautiful. Okay. Hallelujah. Now, though your acceptance is not based on you being perfect, I do need to say, in a bit of a caveat, but it's still on point, that if you claim to be a part of the family, but you're just completely disregarding the loving commands of our dad, and this is not what I mean. I don't mean that you're struggling against sin, but you're falling and failing along the way, right? That's where we're all at. We are all struggling against temptation. We are all fighting against sin, and we all struggle, we, we fail and we fall along the way. That's, that's what grace and repentance and forgiveness are for, right? Conviction deals with us, and, and, and instead of pushing that away, we repent. That's not what I'm talking about. We're, we're all in that spot. However, I mean that you, if you are willfully in rebellion, uh, we can't just let you pretend that everything is okay. Um, we have to first confront you, confront you with the truth and love. And we have to do everything we can to convince you to repent. And we have to take uh, great pains to try to communicate to you the, the, the pain the body feels over the fact that you've, you're deceived and that you're sinning. And that we, we don't want, um, you know, the, the scriptures tell us that if one of us is sick, we're all sick. And that's not just about a common cold. It's not because we all sat in the same room <laughs> uh, for a service. It's talking about one of us is struggling in our heart. If one of us is is being tempted and led astray, man, we're all feeling that. It should. It should hurt us. If I really love you, it should bother me if you're struggling. I should care about it. And I do, and we do. Um, And we should try to communicate to you the pain that the family feels because of your sin. But if if you harden your heart and you refuse to yield, there is a point where, like the prodigal son, you gotta go. This is not popular. You will not hear this said much. Uh, I mention church discipline ever so often in sermons uh, simply because I like to see you get really upset about it. It's good for you. Um, It's good for you because we all are prideful and we all have a rebellious streak in our heart. We we are at a disadvantage from a pride perspective simply because we live in America. I'm not anti-American. I'm very thankful that I live where I live and I believe God establishes times and places where he puts people, so I'm not questioning him anyways, okay? But what I'm saying is we have an attitude problem. We have an autonomous, I'm the boss, I can do what I want, you ain't going to tell me nothing. Did he say ain't? Yes. Because I was being you. (laughs) You guys make this hard. Um, You see what I'm saying? We, this, this rugged American attitude, we beat the British, we came over here and conquered the land, right? So who's going who's gonna to tell us anything? God is, and the authority he establishes is, and this word definitely is, because God's king, okay? That's how that works. Uh, and that's really hard, still though. 
if what you really believe is that you want to disobey Father and, and do things your own way, we can't just live a charade. That's oftentimes what ends up happening. Um, it, it really, it'd be like me sitting at the dinner table with my kids and they just, they just, you know, continually berate me. I mean, you'd almost in your imagination have to get my kids a little older for this to be possible. It'd be like me sitting there with my kids, they're flipping me off, throwing food at me, cursing at me, saying, you're a terrible dad, you hate us, you're not good to us, you don't love us, your intentions toward us are not good, we're not going to respect you, we don't care what you say, we are not going to obey you, we're going to do what we want. Um, if that's really what you believe, at some point you got to go because there's nothing we can do here. What are we going to do? If that's really where you're at, you know better than I do. What, what else can we do until somehow you come <laughs> to a repentant attitude about that right there? Maybe some time away will cause you to see how good it really was at Father's house, which is, of course, what happened with the prodigal son. Are all of you familiar enough with the story that I need not recite it, right? The guy comes, Father, I want my inheritance, goes to a far-off land, parties down, wine, women, and song. Gets his boo thing on, right? Yes, I am hip and urban, okay? Uh, some of you don't know this about me, but I am. So he goes, man, and <clears throat> burns through that money. And wouldn't you know it, the friends and the party is gone when the money's gone. Wow. Shocker. Uh, and what, what ends up happening is he wakes up in a pig bin, and he says he comes to himself. The Bible says he comes to himself and realizes, this is not as fun as I thought. And I could probably go back to my dad's house, and at least his servants eat bread. I'm eating here among the pigs, starving to death. Um, fighting pigs for lunch, so I'll just go back and try to beg my father for a, a position as a servant. At least I'll be able to eat. Um, and we know, of course, that the father in that story doesn't let him come be a servant, but is uh, happy to have him back and restores him as a son. Doesn't seem right or fair. Seems like he should get worse than that. And of course, we know that that's not a story for the sake of a story. We know that each of us is that prodigal son. And that God is that loving Father. First um, Corinthians 5 tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And so if somebody decides to openly and directly rebel against what God has told us are his loving expectations, then it would essentially be like just entering the fellowship, coming in here every week, and, and going around telling people, yeah, you know what, dad's a liar. God's, God's a liar. Um, the reality is his rules are way too strict. He, he doesn't really care about you. Um, and, and look, I'm disobeying him and nothing's happening to me. Paul says it is sinful when leaders don't have the spine to tell that person to repent and quit lying with their lifestyle. Paul calls it sinful. Because what he's dealing with there in, in Corinth is that those Christians were saying, look, grace, grace is awesome, yay, Forgiveness, grace, forgiveness, grace. And they've got the grace banners out. And so there's a guy there in open sexual sin. The Bible says he's sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, so we don't know what that means totally. It's freaky no matter what, okay? Whether there's biological connection there, it's a stepmom, God, I hope so, but still weird. Um, that's the situation, right? And, and the Corinthians are going, yay, we accept you, right? We're not going to correct you. 
We're going to, yes, that was a ballet move, first time ever. Might be the last one you ever see, so mark it down. I'm just trying to epitomize for you this kind of, you know, haphazard, lackadaisical attitude they had towards sin. Um, and this, they're trumpeting it like, yeah, see, we're not, look, grace, yay. And, and, and Paul's, you know, I can, just, I can just see Paul. It says he was a short guy, but I, just, I imagine he had, he had an angry vein. And I, he's just like, no! Do we sin all the more that grace may abound? May it never be. These are the words that Paul uses. He says, you, spineless leaders at Corinth, remove that man. If he refuses to repent, that is the only course of action you have. That's not popular today. Some of you may never come back to this church because I just said that. Because you can go to a hundred different churches around here and never hear somebody stand up and say, if you refuse to stop sinning, you will not be allowed to just continue to act like everything's okay. You won't like that. What about love? What about forgiveness? Here's the thing. If you're on fire, the most loving thing for me to do is say, um, <clears throat> hey, bro, you're on fire. And try to get some water and put you out. Instead of going, oh, no, you're doing good. <laughs> yeah. You're burning to death, but don't worry about it. Grace. Right? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's ridiculous for people to stand up and be supposed leaders and shepherds and not willing to deal with sin. Can't do it. That's not real. And it's, it's, it's hard for me to say that because I know who I'm talking to. Not that you're bad people, but just our culture in general. You're, this is not prime time, right? This, you, don't, <laughs> you don't get the TBN TV preaching deal for getting up and saying stuff like this, but I love you. I love you too much to care about that. So I'm just telling you right now, husbands, okay, you decide you're going to um, you know, leave your wife and leave your kids and, and trade up to a new model or whatever, and you think you're just going to bring her and come here and sit in the pews and act like everything's cool with me and Jesus? We got our own thing going? No, you don't. The scriptures say clearly that you're in sin. Um, and me and a few brothers, are gonna, we're going to give you an opportunity to repent and we're going to love on you. We are going to do that first. <laughs> but if that doesn't work, it's going to escalate from there. Because <laughs> we're not going to have your wife sitting two pews behind seeing you with your new girlfriend. No deal. And, and you can go run to some soft church. I'm probably going to come find you there. Because <laughs> I love you, and I love your wife, and I love your kids. Okay? Who's real mad about that? Come see me afterwards. It'll be fun. We'll have a good conversation. Bring your Bible, okay? All right. <clears throat> um. <laughs> so here's the thing. Even, even if that person does, after all of that, we lovingly try to restore them. And that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of making jest. The reality is Galatians gives us a path. Uh, first, we do everything we can in love to restore someone that is being deceived and, and, and pulled away by sin. Our first course of action is do everything we can to try to convince you, please don't do this. We love you. We do not want to see you have to break fellowship. We will, we will do anything we can to spend however many hours we have to to, to pray with you and try to love you through that, but if you've just set your heart and mind against it and against God and his word, then, then there is a point where you will have to go. Um, but even if that person does go out and they're deceived and they're angry and they're, you know, throwing accusation, we, you're not loving and you're, you know, Jesus loves everybody and why didn't you love me? Uh, even if somebody does that, we don't hate them. 
and we don't disown them. We, we lovingly pray for them. And our posture is always this. We wait anxiously on the porch like the prodigal son's dad. We're not angry because we understand that all of us have the propensity and tendency and possibility to be pulled away in sin just like that. And so we should extend grace and we should, we should anxiously hope for their return. We should pray for their safe return home. And if they are willing to repent and, and they, they do go out and they see uh, the pain that sin causes and, and what they want to do is, is surrender again to Jesus, we receive them like the prodigal son's father did. And we love them. Amen? Amen. Happy about that? I'm happy about it. Grace is amazing. I'm glad to be a part of uh, King Jesus Church. So, uh, bottom line of all that, there, there are three reasons that being a part of the family of God is different than being a part of an earthly family. Right? There's three reasons. One, family of God has a perfect dad. That makes all the difference in the world. You could really stop there because every other reason flows out of his goodness and perfection. Okay? Um, the second reason is the kids are spirit-filled. Right? We may get at each other's throats. We may you know, want to brawl sometimes in the, in the hallway. However, uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're filled with God's love and we love each other and we're on a mission together. And this whole deal is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than my opinion or my preference God's called us to get something done, and it's let as many people know there's hope in Christ as possible. And so when we elevate that to the place it belongs, it becomes less about my particular little, this is how I like it, or, or I don't like what you said, or whatever. Who cares? At the end of the day, we're talking about eternities here. We're talking about being on a mission for a king that created everything with his words. And so uh, we are in a privileged position. We are part of the family and the army of God. We've been given a mission to let people know there's hope in Christ. And so we march on. Will there be opportunities to be offended? Yes. What should you do? Get over it. <laughs> Forgive them. Love them. Um, if you got to, go to talk to them about it. Give them an opportunity to repent. There's an incredible growth that happens when you go through biblical conflict resolution. Somebody hurts your feelings... A mature Christian has to be able to pray, ask for God's help, go to that person and say, you hurt me. Here's when it happened. Here's what you said. And that person, if spiritually mature, doesn't get defensive and freak out and justify themselves. They say, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And both people grow because of that process right there. Pride and offense and the plans of the devil are crushed and Jesus wins. When people grow up and deal with problems the Jesus way. Good. A couple of you are excited about that. I'm glad. Um, and the third reason is why it's different to be a part of God's family than just every other family is there's room to struggle and grow and to learn in grace. There's room to not be perfect. There's room to not have it all figured out. Aren't you glad about that? I'm real glad about that because I don't. <laughs> I don't have it all figured out. Not even close. Um, I want to call your attention to verse 21 and 22 uh, here in Ephesians 2. Um, the building of the family and kingdom of God here is compared to the constructing of a building. Um, and it says that King Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Uh, and, and I'm not sure, you know, I don't know, not everybody has a construction background. And even if you do, a lot of the building methods we, we use today don't utilize a cornerstone in the way they did there. So I want to just take a moment to emphasize for you, hopefully, uh, properly how important that is. That it says that, um, let, me, let me just read here again, 
verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, right? So uh, we know that in, in, in the New Testament, because of, of Jesus' finished work on the cross, that we can now be forgiven, redeemed, our hearts regenerated, and now God's Spirit no longer dwells in a temple made with hands. Not, God is not in some place on the earth, but He literally indwells us, His people, which is a beautiful truth, something to be very encouraged about, and that's part of what's being talked about here. However, the, the analogy being used is that King Jesus should, is and should be the cornerstone for the big family, for us as God's people, the church, but also in our individual life and, and in, our, in our little families and our homes. And so what is the deal with cornerstone? Why is that important? The way a building would have been built then, the very first thing that would have been laid out, the, the thing that would have been given the most, uh, the most skilled artisans, the thing focused on with the greatest intensity would have been the shaping and setting of the cornerstone because the way the walls and the building w- was built is that all of the weight and pressure from the rest of that building would have been focused on and, and would end up sitting upon that cornerstone. The way things were built, that stone right there, had it been pulled out, just like when you're the, the guy that messes up the, the Jenga stack, you pull that one out, everything crumbles. That's, that's the way the cornerstone was, and that's what's being said here. Without Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel, all that we do as the church, all that you do in your life personally, all that you try to build as a family will fall and crumble. There is no point to build if the cornerstone is not set properly and is not of the right material. You may as well stop before you start because you're going to be real frustrated. If that's not right, you're going to start, you, you, you do a shoddy job with that, or you figure out, bypass that, it's not that important, or we'll just stick any old thing in there in the cornerstone spot. I want to hurry up and get this thing built. And so off you go, you start to build, the pressure increases, you get, get more of your life built on top of that thing, boom, it crushes, goes into powder. All that additional work, and that's pretty frustrating. And that's where a lot of you find yourselves. It's frustrating. When Jesus is not cornerstone, when he is not uh, the thing which all of the rest of life is built upon, it's very frustrating because nothing else will hold. No other idol will hold. No other counterfeit savior, king, God will hold. Money won't hold there. Power won't hold there. Fame won't hold there. Romance and, and some, some romantic sense of relationship or, or sexual attraction, that's not going to hold there. It's going to crumble. King Jesus is the only one that can bear the weight. It is of the utmost importance that we understand Jesus' place as cornerstone, not only for the building of the big family of God into a glorious and holy temple for the Lord, but for each of our little families that make up the big family. I want to read for you Matthew 7, 24 through 27 real quick. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it has been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, And it fell, and great was its fall. Again, we know that Jesus teaches in parables, right? He's not 
really talking about two builders building two houses. He's not really talking about actual storms. He's talking about people building lives on different types of foundation. One on sand, one on rock. The guy that listens to Jesus, his house is on rock. The guy that thinks he can do it better than Jesus, his house is on sand. Wind, storm, flood comes. What is that? That's the difficulty of life. It comes in all variety and flavors, right? We've got financial difficulty, relational difficulty, emotional difficulty, and the list goes on and on. There's all kinds of ways life gets hard. Is that true? You guys aren't real excited about the Jesus stuff, but you know life's hard, right? You'll at least agree with me about that. Yeah? Life can be a super bummer. It comes all different kinds of ways. It's coming. A storm is coming. So your foundation is going to be tested. Unavoidable. Difficulty will come. It will come in some form. A sandy foundation will wash away. And all that you built on top of it, that pretty house with its pretty doors and its pretty windows, everything else could have been done right. Foundation's not right. Right thing, not in the right place. All of it crumbles. We lose. Foundation is right. King Jesus is set as cornerstone. All of life is built upon his truth and his gospel. The winds can come, the floods can come, and you may have a broken window, shingle may blow off, but I'll tell you what, the house will be there at the end. You're not going to have to start over again. Amen. Did you hear in Craig and Amy's story that they had been trying to build a life together for 12 years? So you've got 12 years of this process, this frustration of building, falling, rebuilding. They kept laying a foundation of life made of sticks and mud and sand. And when the difficulties of life would come, not only would everything they built on top of that faulty foundation come crumbling down, but the very ground would be swept out from underneath them. That gets really exhausting. Can anybody witness to the fact that building and rebuilding, doing it over and over because the foundation's not right of life, that can get exhausting. To keep having your legs swept out from under you, keep having your life swept out from under you, everything you're trying to build and get done, it just seems like it keeps crumbling over and over again. Why is that? Why am I so exhausted? Why am I so frustrated? Why does it seem like nothing will work? It might be built on the wrong thing. We may not have Jesus as chief cornerstone. And that was the problem. And it's, it's beautiful now that they know that. You heard, you heard Amy say in the video, we, we'd pray to God. It'd be a month, two months. We would, we'd white-knuckle it, do the best we could. But we were missing that essential link that we didn't know what to set in the cornerstone place. We didn't have the truth of Christ and his gospel to put there. So we kept sticking other stuff there and trying to build, and it didn't work. And it was frustrating. And it was exhausting. But then Jesus, but then Jesus showed up, came and did in their hearts what only he can do. Showed them what the difference was. Showed them how to build a life. And they're doing that. It's no wonder people stuck in that process, not having Christ in the place that he belongs uh, central to all that they do. It's, it's no wonder that they give up and they split up and they, and they walk out so often um, to have a vague idea of God and to, to, to cry out to him but not understand Jesus and his gospel is, is demoralizing and difficult to say the least. And what, what they didn't understand is that 
not having the truth about Jesus, that, that there's no life, there's no family, that nothing at all can be built upon anything other than the rock of the revelation of King Jesus and his gospel. No life's going to work. It's, you can't do it. There's only one foundation that is solid enough to handle that. You may be asking yourself, what does this mean? Because we can use examples and we can use analogies to compare the building of our life to the, the construction of an actual structure and building. We can say that Jesus and his gospel must be set as the cornerstone or our efforts will be in vain. We can paint that picture, but what does that mean practically? For Jesus to be our sure foundation, for Jesus to be central, for Jesus to be set as chief cornerstone, what does that, what does that actually look like? I could say, yeah, Jesus is my cornerstone, but what, how would I know <laughs> if that's actually true? The Word of God is our measure. You may be anticipating this. It may seem like an oversimplistic answer, but sometimes we, we look for some mysterious new answer when the reality is that the simple truth's been there all the time. The Word of God is our measure. Building our life and family upon Jesus and his gospel doesn't mean that we sprinkle our favorite inspirational verses into a conversation every once in a while. It's not that we make reference to Jesus when it's convenient. It's not that... Um, Every so often, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of jump in and out of being a part of what it is that God's people are doing. It means that absolutely every part of our family, our life, our work, our leisure, and even our thoughts is brought under submission to the Word of God. This is having Jesus as cornerstone. If I'm building all that I have, everything, all of my life upon His gospel and His truth, um, I have to come into submission to his word. It's interesting that in order to build your life and family upon the cornerstone of Christ, that he must first truly be your Lord and King. How many other rulers offer their back as a place for you to build? What a beautifully humble and totally sovereign God that we serve. It's amazing. The humility of our God to be willing to be referenced as a foundation that we can build our lives upon. What are you talking about? We're talking about the king of everything. Most other kings, all they're going to want to hear about is you at my feet bowed down. But God's talking about through Christ and his gospel. I want to, I want to set for you a sure foundation that you have something to build upon that's going to last. And I'm willing to be referenced as that piece of rock you build upon just so that you get it. I want you to understand. That me and the truth of my word is the only thing that's going to last. So that you can build and build and build until the day that you die or he comes to get you. And know that that foundation is going to stay. Can't move it. Doesn't matter what the storm is. You get that, right? You understand that there are storms on this earth. This all, many analogies break down when you really try to push hard. There are storms that happen on this earth. And they seem to be ever increasing. That will rip a foundation right up out of the ground and do something crazy with it, right? That's not, that's not what we're talking about. You're not moving this one. King Jesus' cornerstone doesn't matter. I don't care how bad the emotional trauma is. I don't care how bad the, the, the sickness or physical uh, deal that you're having is. I don't care how bad the financial storm is that you're in. I don't care. King Jesus doesn't move. He's not scared of that. There's always reason for hope. There's always reason uh, for, to be able to trust in the stability of Christ because of, of who he is.
The gospel changes families. The reality is that some members of some families will never yield, and the gospel will divide that family. Jesus let us know this in Matthew 10 when he said, I've come to turn fathers against sons, mothers against daughters. Of course, this is not Jesus' primary goal or mission because we know if we look at both the books of Joel and the book of Acts that, um, that the Spirit of God is going to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And so the primary work of God's Spirit is a reconciling and redempting work. However, the reality is some people and some families are going to refuse the free gift of salvation. They're going to refuse to submit themselves to King Jesus and thus you will have families divided by Jesus in this gospel. Not that that is what he wants to happen. However, it will happen. And I think, I think our position should never be to, to walk away from an abandoned family members if we can help it. But the reality is some of you will experience abandonment because of your faith in Christ. Some of you will experience persecution because of your faith in Christ, because of your fervor for Christ. Some... some People in your family may, may have that vague understanding of God and, and, and live a life with a few sprinkled inspirations every once in a while from, from God's word. But when they see that you, uh, that you do live tenaciously, that you are, do gather with God's people, that you are a part of community groups, that you sacrifice time, talent, and treasure to see God's kingdom furthered, they may, they may persecute you for that. What are you doing? You don't have to do all that. It's too It's too much. I know of people in this church that, that go through that struggle. Families, we, just last week I found out, uh, first time I've heard, I was really excited, we got accused of being a cult. And you know you're not doing it right unless you get accused of being a cult. So I'm going to give that one a hand. Yes. That means we're doing something right. I'm happy about that, all right? Not because, you know, we're going to spike the Kool-Aid communion, um, or the communion Kool-Aid anyways. When you switch words, it's funny. Um, so that, that, that's not the deal, but... Um, they were saying it was so funny because somebody's, somebody knows somebody that knew somebody and, and they had come here and they were, they were telling them, uh, yeah, I'm freaked out, this guy I know. I think he's a part of this cult. I think the church is like called We Love the City or something like that. And he's, he's always going out and, and he like spends all his time ministering to homeless people and taking them food and, and like talks with them. And, and he like spends all his time doing that. It's, it's so weird. And I was like, yes. He's like, I think he's a part of a cult. I'm like, Total win. Yeah. If that's what a cult is, then I am. If a cult is, is somebody that cares more about other people than they care about themselves, if a cult is somebody that runs counter grain to this totally self-indulgent culture, yes, I'll be the cult leader if that's what that means. Woo! You didn't think I'd be excited? You thought I'd get mad, huh? People call him a cult? Wouldn't that make you upset? No, I'm thrilled about it. Especially when the the facets of our cult is that we, we love and minister to homeless people. <laughs> Freaks. It's amazing. That's absolutely a true story. I promise. I was so happy. I just, I just started dancing right when, it, right when someone told me that. It's like, good Lord in heaven, hallelujah. We're the love the homeless people cult. Man, I can't believe people giving up their evenings. Man, they could be home watching Dancing with the Stars, but... They're out feeding people that are hungry. Ridiculous. <laughs> Cult. Here's the thing. The sad truth is that uh, not all people are going to repent. Not all people will receive the free gift of salvation. And, and thus, some families will have division in this life and separation for eternity. That's true. 
But I think that we always should stand on the side of, of not abandoning our unbelieving family members. We should always pray for them, um, ask for God to, to soften their hearts, that they can come to the saving faith uh, of knowing Christ. And so um, they won't always make that easy on us, but I, I just, I don't know. Jesus didn't give up on me. And, and somebody could probably find a verse and counter what I'm saying right now, but I just, my general position on that is, I, if anybody was a lost cause, I was. Somebody should have been given up on it. Really, it should have been me. And so I see that God is very long-suffering. He's very, very gracious. And so I'm, I'm glad he, that's the way he went at me with it. <laughs> so I'm trying to do that by his power for others. You may be here and not be familiar with the gospel. I've been saying that word a lot. You may be thinking, what is this thing that has the power to change whole families and change eternal destinies? And uh, though I just implanted that question upon you, I'm really glad that you asked. Um, the gospel, it is, it is the crown jewel of the Christian faith. Gospel literally means good news, okay? Um, and I want to just say something before I say this, because some of you were tempted, as I begin to say those words, you were tempted to check out because you, you had a cognitive recognition that you have probably heard the next few minutes of what I'm about to say before. Because, very intentionally, we will lay out the gospel as a part of our services and a part of the preaching here at this church every single week. And there is similarity to that. Uh, and I want you to understand that we don't preach the gospel here very simply and very plainly every week, only because we want to catch the potential person that's here that's never heard it. Though that's one of the reasons. There could be someone here that does not understand the beautiful truth of the gospel. They've never heard it before. And so, of course... We're going to say it for that reason. Yeah. However, we are also going to do it because for the Christian, this should never be dull. It should never be something that I, I check out for because, man, I've heard that a lot. Because this is our crown jewel. This is the apex of our faith. This is the message that we are charged with sharing with the world. And so, in, in one way, we are regospelizing the saints every week. We are giving you again the excitement that should send us out from here to go and share this good news. And so please fight the temptation to check out when you realize, oh, it's gospel presentation time. This is it. This is what all the rest of it boils down to. This is, this is what we have to give the world. And so here at Love City, we have a deep conviction that though the gospel is the good news, that that good news makes little sense without the bad news. And so we have to tell you first that all of us, Romans 3 says, have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Really, all that scripture is telling us is something we're already vibrantly aware. We're not perfect. Everyone in that boat, okay? I think there's like clinical, medical, psychological um, terms for somebody that believes they're perfect. You'd have to be a little crazy. All of us know that we're not perfect. But what some of us don't know is what that means about us and God. See, the, the reality is God created mankind and we were perfect. He stood back and said that that's good. However, the scriptures tell us that Satan came in. He tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, that they chose to rebel against God, to believe the lie that God's intentions for them was not good, that God was holding back something from them, that they needed to eat, taste of that fruit, have the knowledge of good and evil, that God was holding out on them. And so they, they, were, they were sucked into that temptation, they rebelled. Sin then entered the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And from that point on, 
We are all sinners by nature and choice. We are all imperfect. That's really bad news, especially when you realize that the scriptures tell us that God is perfect. The reason he created us perfect in the beginning is because that's what is required for relationship with him. God created us to have relationship. He created us to be his kids, to be his, his prized possession, which is very incredible uh, in light of how much trouble we've been. But he did do that, and he did create us perfect. However, we stepped out of that perfection. So what is required for relationship with a perfect God is perfection. None of us are perfect. How much of a bummer would it be if the story stopped there? It'd be a bad deal. But it doesn't. That's what Jesus is about. That's why Jesus had to come, be born of a virgin, then live a perfect life. That perfect life that none of us could live, that perfect life that's required for relationship with God, that's what Jesus did. Tempted in every way as we are, but never sinned once. Then he had to be willing to go and pay the price for all of us that did do the sin. He never did the crime, but he had to be willing to go and pay the punishment. And he did. Jesus lived a perfect life, then he stepped in. He submitted himself to the torture of crucifixion. He was killed on the cross. Uh, his blood flowed, purchasing our redemption. That's the gospel message. And not only did Jesus die on the cross, uh, purchasing us, saving us from our sin, redeeming us by his precious blood, um, death had no claim to him because of his perfection, and so he did not stay dead. But three days later, he rose. So very soon, we're going we're gonna to celebrate Easter. That's coming, and that's a real fun day for us because that's the day we remember. That's the day we commemorate that our Savior, our King, our God, that though he tasted death, he arose victoriously, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Amen. That our God is eternal, and he is King, and he defeated death on our behalf. Easter's a fun day. You should be here for that. Hallelujah. And so, we celebrate that though we are imperfect, though we are stained by sin, that the precious blood of Christ comes and washes us white as snow, that God is not dead, that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive, and he's raised again. And so, that is the gospel message. And what is required um, in order to be reconciled to God, since none of us is going to pull off the perfection thing, is, is to believe in that gospel message. It's not that we do more good than we do bad, though many people still believe that. Many people have heard the exact gospel presentation I've given many, many times, and I know for a fact they still struggle to understand how it's not based on them. Because nothing else in this life works that way. Where else in this life do we get to ride on someone else's righteousness? Where else do I get to just partake of someone else's performance? Jesus did everything that was required, yet I get to be a part of that. God has made it so that if we will believe in faith, in the finished work of Christ, that we can be saved. And here's what I'm saying to you today. As dirty as you may feel like you came in here, as imperfect, as stained by sin as you may have come in here, what I'm telling you is the power of the gospel can redeem you today, can wash you clean of that. The blood of Christ is for you. You're not the exception to the rule. You're not the one that's too far gone for Jesus to reach. You absolutely, today, can repent of sin, acknowledging to God that, yes, you are a sinner. And you can ask him to come to change your heart, to be king and lord of your life. And the things that you're worried about, the things that you've probably stayed away from the Lord because you, you needed to get those fixed before you came to him, come to him. 
Come to him with all your brokenness and your failings. He invites you to come just as you are. And then what he'll do is by his power and his grace begin to work with you on those things. Don't stay away from him because you imagine yourself too dirty. Because you imagine yourself too far gone. That's the power of the gospel. It can change your heart. I promise you. I stand here as a living testimony of that truth. If you don't believe it, then please ask Craig Prophet. Can, can God take somebody from the pit of darkness? Can God take somebody from death to life? Can God take somebody from hopelessness to having hope? Can, can God take somebody from a crumbling foundation where over and over again you end up in this desperate circle of, of failing over and over and take you to the place where you can begin to build upon a solid cornerstone and have hope for the future? Can God do that? Yes. Undeniably, absolutely. That is the truth. And I invite you to that today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the gospel. I thank you that the gospel has the power to change everything. I thank you, Lord, that the gospel not only changes individuals, that I, th- I thank you that the message of hope and redemption and reconciliation because of the cross, it not only has the power to change my heart, but it has the power to change my family. Thank you, Lord God, that sometimes you come in and you sovereignly move upon a family and an entire family comes to faith in you. I thank you, Lord, sometimes you do it different. Sometimes you grab the attention and affection in the heart of one person and you conquer them for your name and then through them you, you sow seeds of grace and hope and truth into that family. Lord, I pray for those that are within the sound of my voice that they're that one or they're among a few in their family maybe that trust you for their salvation. Lord, I ask you to empower them by your grace to minister to their family. Lord, we know that Sometimes the hardest people to reach, sometimes the hardest people to speak to um, are people in our family. Sometimes there's a level of familiarity, familiarity there that makes it difficult. It makes it hard for us to, to speak to them about deep heart level things. But Lord, I just ask you that you would uh, chase every bit of timidity out of us and replace it with boldness fueled by love. Help us to be less concerned with what those family members may think of us and more concerned with Uh, our love for them and their destiny and eternal uh, destination with you, Lord. Help us to love them well. And I ask, Lord God, that uh, you would anoint this big family, this your family, to love each other in such a way that it it would really glorify and exalt you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.